123 testing 123 this is radio free mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode the unreasonable elder bednar Elder David Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has just completed a two-part talk in which he seeks to do his level-headed best to provide a means of defending the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Part one was given back in August of 2022, and he just recently completed part two of that major address. The Backyard Professor, a.k.a. Carrie Shirts, had me on his show recently where I suggested that we should talk about Elder Bednar's address. And because we wanted to do a deep dive and not give this talk short shrift, we devoted an entire episode to dealing just with part one of Elder Bednar's talk. We had a number of technical difficulties with the live stream of this show. So I have gone back and spent no less than six hours now editing what was originally a two-hour and 38-minute podcast down to just over two hours. I think all the work I've done editing it has paid off, and this presentation is much more streamlined than the original. This is such an historic address by Elder Bednar that I felt it very important to do a response to it, and so devoted am I to this cause that I spent six hours over the last three days producing this podcast, so hopefully it will be ready for prime time. I am recording these words on the morning of November 24th, 2022, Thanksgiving. Well, that's enough of an introduction for now. Let's go to the discussion of Elder Bednar's talk, That Ye May Believe, Part 1. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it with the Backyard Professor. To paraphrase Elder Bednar, okay, are you ready? Are your seatbelts on? Here we go. I am. We're live. Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. We have a wild and crazy show going on. Radio Free Mormon is in the house, baby. But first, as usual, we have to start this thing off properly. So let's get going on the starting so that we can hear RFM's wonderful wisdom. Holy Toledo RFM. (laughs) How are you, my friend? I'm fine. I love that new intro. I love the new intro music. It sounds a little bit like the Carmina Barana, O Fortuna. It does, doesn't it? It's kind yeah, of that, like that music that they always use in the, the scary movies, like uh, The Omen. That sounds like Damien's theme that you've got going there. <laughs> I have another one that I can do that actually has much more scary music. I can dress up as Dracula or the Great Pumpkin or something from Charlie Brown. <laughs> Well, I'm so excited to be on the show tonight. We have got something wonderful to talk about, and we all know, you and I know at least, we got to jump right into this thing because we got a lot of ground to cover, and we're only talking about part one of Elder Bednar's recent talk, his two-part talk, That Ye May Believe is the name of it. And may I believe? Am I allowed to believe? Yeah, you can believe whatever you want. Oh, okay. You, you just can't yeah. talk about it. Oh, that's right. Yes, you must remain silent in church like the women in the early Christians, according to Paul. So, Well, at least one of those passages that's attributed to Paul. He says different things on the subject. We, uh, we discovered something really interesting last week, week, week before that, that uh, David Bednar, Elder David Bednar, had given a two-part talk. And we were going to do all... 10 doctrinal points, but we realized we aren't going to have time. So we're going to take the first five tonight. We're going to discuss the unreasonableness of the critics 
thinking that it is unreasonable to have faith in Jesus Christ. That is what Elder Bednar talked about in his fireside scholarly colloquium, wherever he was, Salt Lake Temple upper room. And we're going to break this up. So let's get to this first doctrinal point of Elder Bednar. Oh, if you'll hang on just a second, Carrie, you're jumping into it even faster than I expected. Is it okay if I give a brief overview of what it is he's doing? Absolutely. Go, man, go. Thank you. So what Elder Bednar is doing is he has a talk. Would that help or hinder? That's the opening. That's okay for right now. Yeah, I think that's a good thing right now. I love your slides. These are slides done by Carrie Schertz. The backyard professor. Yes. So he gave a two-part talk on this because one part was not enough to contain all of the things that Elder Bednar wanted to cover. So his whole idea is this, is that his thesis is, it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. This was a talk that was given Sunday, August 28, 2022, at the University of Utah, and that was uh, the Institute building. Okay, so that was part one, August 28th. He promised in that talk that he would have a part two. By the way, in the first talk, he goes over five things that Joseph Smith introduced. All right. They're basically basic doctrines of the eldest church that everybody already knows. He's trying to brush them off, make them shiny, put them in this new context and try and get people to recognize that these doctrines prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. All right. It is very confusing reading his talk. This is like when I went back with uh, Bill Real on Mormonism Live and we did the uh, Halverson talk. I can't remember his first name, but he's the new kid on the block who's the apologetic guru for the church. And the difficulty with his talk is the same thing I had with Elder Bednar's talk, which is that I have to really listen to it a number of times and read it and dissect it before I can understand what it is he's really talking about. And I have to understand what he's talking about before I can critique it. But I think we've gotten to that point. So he gives this long introduction in which he states his thesis And then he's going to talk about five doctrines that Joseph Smith produced in his first talk. And then he's going to give the other five in the second talk, which he just got done giving recently about a week or so ago. And he gave a second talk at the University of Idaho. Or excuse me, I should say Brigham Young University, Idaho, where, you know, he was the president for a while. So he was returning to the scene of the crime to give part two. The thing that's interesting about it is that I'm sorry about this. I know this is your show, but just no, a second. I'll let you get a word in here edgewise in a minute. Let it out. Let he, it out. He positions this. He frames this as if he's going to give an intellectual, scholarly, secular defense of Mormonism and of belief in Christ. And he even goes so far as to give this well-known quote from Austin Farrar, which you, me, and everybody at Farms has heard of a hundred times. Austin M. Farrar, a renowned English Anglican philosopher, theologian, and biblical scholar, made the following insightful statement. Though argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. So this was basically the, the mission statement, I think, of the old farms. It was. That was their, they, 
They would quote that all the time. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Daniel C. Peterson was well known for putting that in his editorials of the old farm reviews. He said, no, we're not going to convince you, but we're not going to remain silent. Right. And so what what Elder Bednar is doing is framing this as if he's going to give a secular response to keep people from leaving the church. Because the title of it is, That Ye May Believe. And he chose that title for a reason because he thinks his talk here is going to be the antidote and the answer and the panacea for what ails people who are leaving the church and who are, are having doubts about the church. He's going to give them the key. My purpose tonight is not simply to make a rational argument for the truthfulness of the restored gospel and church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Rather, I hope to discuss with you spiritually essential truths in a way that may allow belief to flourish. And he's very excited about it when you listen to the audio. Are you buckled up? (laughs) Ready to go? I'm not here to entertain you tonight. So hang on. Here we go. If Elder Bednar is excited about anything, he's excited about this. And you can tell by his manner of delivery in certain places. But what he ends up doing has almost nothing to do with giving a secular argument or a rational argument in favor of Mormonism. Basically, what he does is he goes through these 10 points, right? Mm -hmm. Five in the first talk, five in the second talk. We're only covering the first talk tonight, and believe me, that'll be plenty. So that's what he does. But basically, he just puts them out there and says, aren't these wonderful? And don't these make you feel good? And therefore, isn't it obviously true? The only point where he gets to trying to be rational and objective as opposed to subjective with the feelings, right? Right. The only point in his talk where he tries to be objective is where he is making the argument that Joseph Smith came up with all of these novel, radical, creative ideas about religion and that he didn't get them from any place else in his environment. No. They are different than, this is his argument, that he didn't get them from the Christian churches of his day, because actually his beliefs contradict what the Christian church is taught. Yeah. And therefore, since Joseph Smith was theologically innovative, it proves that he's a prophet of God. Yeah. You want to say anything right there, Professor? Well, I was just thinking, you know, you can you can truly choose any religious leader of any religious faith. And I guarantee you, you will find something unique about them that the others don't have or won't uh, emphasize or whatever. But nobody believes that makes those religions true. Otherwise, we would be all of those religions. So you would have hundreds of thousands of different unique beliefs in each and every single religion. But that can't possibly make them all true unless you do the Joseph Campbell religions are all true in their own symbolic way and that's not what Bednar is talking about at all <laughs> no he's talking about eternal truths of things that really are both here and in the eternities yep. which of yep. course Mormonism has the monopoly on yeah. now having said that and I, you've just put your finger right on it his argument is not correct which we'll go into factually it's incorrect saying that Joseph Smith came up with all of these ideas which were unknown in his community and different from what other religions were teaching. But for purposes of argument at this point, I'm going to assume that he's correct and that all 10 of these things that he's going to list, five tonight, uh, that we'll go over in the first talk, 
that they are all completely original and there was no place that Joseph Smith could have gotten it from in his environment, that he was truly theologically innovative on all five of these points and 10 when we get to the last, last ones. Right, right. If we assume that's true for purposes of argument, even though it's not, if we assume it's true, it's a non sequitur because as you're saying, just because someone is theologically innovative does not therefore mean that what they are innovating on is given to them directly from God. And you gave a great example. Are we saying that anybody else who's been theologically innovative, and we've had them for thousands of years in all sorts of different religions, just in Christianity, there are tons of theological innovations. That does not mean that they come from God. So creativity in a theological sense should not be confused with revelation. Or in other words, just because you're theologically creative, doesn't mean that it has to come from God and it can't just come from someplace else, like your own creativity. Yeah, and they're talking about Thomas Aquinas in the chat right now. I mean, now there was a theological powerhouse, truly. His theology is it's so deep, even I, the backyard professor, cannot comprehend what he says most of the time. But that's not really a surprise. Oh, so Chris, uh, Elder Bednar goes on to say, my purpose is not simply to make a rational argument for the truthfulness of the restored gospel in church. So that is his purpose. But also, he wants to talk about the spiritually essential truths, i.e. this list of 10 things. Now, the very first thing he gets to, because you know that when you're going to give a talk like this, the first thing that you've got to do is not get into the discussion of what it is you're talking about. The first thing you have to do is give a huge warning and poison the water hole and make sure that everybody knows that anybody who challenges the teachings of Elder Bednar and the current leadership of the church is on Satan's errand. He would, And so this would. next section immediately following is titled what? Satan's Strategies of Deception and Spiritual Destruction. Yeah, spiritual destruction. That sounds serious. Well, it is serious. And so he's going to try and use loaded language as much as he can to get people to agree with him in ways that have nothing to do with rationality, which is what he said he's going to do. But this is something that they did at the Swedish Rescue back in 2010. I think it's about 12 years ago that that happened. Has it been that long already? 12 years? Well, I think so. When, um, who was it? It was um, Rick Turley and who was the church historian at the time? Uh, Do you remember his name? It was before Snow. It was Marlon Jensen, right? Yeah, so they both go over there. And they've they've flown all the way over to Sweden, and they're going to talk to him about all these problems that people are having. But they spend like the first 20 minutes talking about how Satan is the one who challenges the teachings of the church and who has doubts and encourages you to doubt to make sure everybody knows that to come up with the right answer, the non-Satanic answer, they have to agree with the church leaders. And this is what Elder Bednar is doing here as well. And he goes to two accounts, and I'm going to let you take over here in a second. He goes to two accounts in the Book of Mormon. The first one's Cory Hoare. So he reads from this passage. He takes well, out a couple of principles. Nephi, is it? I'm sorry? That's not in Second Nephi, is it? <laughs> no. No, this is in Alma, I think. Alma chapter 30. And then he goes to the Samuel the Lamanite story in the Book of Mormon. And what he wants to draw out of both of them is two things. First off, that Cory Hoare says that it's foolish to believe in Christ. Actually, no, it's foolish to say you know that Christ is coming because he lives before Jesus came the first time, right? 
Right. It's foolish to know that. And the second thing is you cannot know of things which ye do not see. That's part of the same first one. But then he yep. says that it's the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your minds comes because of the traditions of your fathers. Fool. So those are the two things he's going to pick up on, both from Corey Hoare and the people who are not members of the church at the time of Samuel the Lamanite, that they are of the opinion that you can't know things that you don't see or experience with your five senses. And also that Corey Hoare accuses those who do believe in Jesus or say that they know that Jesus is coming of having a frenzied and deranged mind. So that's the next thing. And he's going to try and use those themes throughout his talk. Yeah, and I've got some construction going on here in another room of the underground bunker. We're throwing out a new wing. So hopefully that won't be too bothersome to people. I apologize for that. I've got no control over that. Yeah, this idea of Korahor saying that you can't know unless you see. It's very interesting how Bednar switches one little word in his talk, doesn't he? He says, you can't believe what you can't see. So he's changing things up to build a straw man argument against the criticism of Korahor. And I thought that was a remarkably interesting idea. You actually uh, pointed that out to me earlier. And I think I think that makes a lot of sense based on how we're in chapter 30 of Alma, where he's talking to Korahor. And what Bednar wants to do, and he testifies of, is the senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our touch, our taste. I just ate pumpkin pie. My taste works great. They're good, but they're not as good as a witness of the Holy Spirit. So Bednar is trying to say something Korahor is saying against using our eyes to believe. But that's not what Korahor is saying. He is saying, you can't see it, therefore you can't know it. If you can't see it, he has nothing to do about belief. So Right, and in a specific sense, what Korahor is responding to is the belief that Jesus is going to come to the earth and do the atonement and rise again on the third day, etc., which the Nephites know all about in advance, right. unlike the people in the Old Testament, but they got special knowledge. So that's what he's arguing about. And now here's what David Bednar is going to say, because this is the place where Elder Bednar jumps the shark early. He really is all over the place in his argumentation. I know it sounds like we're all over the place right now, but part of that's because he is, and we're trying to keep up with him. That's true. He talks about how what you said, that seeing is not the most important thing to know something, that you can have these experiences with the spirit that are greater than actually seeing. And we've heard that before, right? We'll get to that here in a minute. Right. But what he says here, and I'll quote from him, comparing and contrasting the teachings of Alma and Korihor is most instructive. Now, I am quoting word for word here, so pay attention because it's going to sound like I missed something because it's so strange. Now, comparing and contrasting the teachings of Alma and Korihor is most instructive. Alma declares that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. According to Alma, with Christ-focused faith, believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing. And I thought this was remarkable. I thought, 
I can't be understanding him correctly because it's obvious that Alma is having the argument with Cory Hor. Cory Hor is the one who's saying, you got to be able to see it to know. And Alma is saying, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And I was surprised that Elder Bednar interprets Alma exactly 180 degrees opposite of what it is Alma seems to be saying. So he says Alma saying that believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing. Uh, the thing I find is interesting is the faith in Christ, he defined the faith accurately as believing in something that is true, but you don't see it. But then he turns around and says, the faith in Christ is seeing. That just doesn't make sense to me because no, and it makes it makes no sense to me either. And in fact, it contradicts no, everything else he's going to say throughout his talk. It does. It skews everything that he says from that point on. In fact, it skews all five of the points we're going to make tonight on that. And he says, "Can you feel the power of the Holy Ghost? The truth of these doctrinal foundations, which cannot be touched or seen." but which begin to enlighten your understanding and increase your faith. That's, I think that's why he's trying to elevate the spiritual feeling above sight. Right. But I would think that even if Elder Bednar doesn't recognize it, he launches off his talk by saying, I'm going to give a rational argument to defend the faith. Yes. And that's one of the main things I'm going to do. It's not the only thing I'm going to do, but that's the main thing I'm going to do. That's why he starts with that quote. But it never shows up. No. He really wants to focus on going over these 10 principles and then having people feel good about them so that they can understand that they are actually true, which is anything but a rational argument. It's gone from the objective to the subjective. To the subject. And the interesting thing is he is also quoting scholarly articles, as we will see a little later, in order to give the appearance of objectivity. Right. And one of the other things that he does, which is interesting, right, is that he's talking about Cory Hor. Well, Cory Hor is a straw man antichrist that's put in Alma chapter 30 by the author of the Book of Mormon, specifically so he can be refuted by Alma the prophet, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what Elder Bednar is doing is he is attacking this straw man figure, Cory Hor, who was put in the Book of Mormon to be a straw man figure. And then he feels like he's putting Cory Hoare in his place and showing how Cory Hoare's wrong. And therefore, people shouldn't have doubts about the truth of the church. Yeah, you don't want to be on the side of Cory Hoare. Right. And so what I had written here in my notes was Cory Hoare is a straw man figure in the Book of Mormon. What he says is a caricature of what critics really say today. Cory Hoare is a foil for Alma to argue with, and Alma will, of course, win the argument. Elder Bednar is taking a straw man character from the Book of Mormon, and he wants to argue against what Cory Hoare says but doesn't want to say a word about what it is that is actually causing people to leave the church today. It may surprise you that he never talks about any of the issues about why people are leaving the church today in isn't this two-part talk. Crazy? Yeah. Yes, but entirely yeah. predictable, isn't it? And it says yeah, volumes. Our... He doesn't want to go there. No. He knows he will not prevail if he actually deals with the issues. So he's going to talk around the issues in this sort of fluffy, generic kind of ineffective way, at least ineffective from my point of view. By the way, the reason we wanted to talk about these 
is because Elder Bednar obviously feels that this is his substantial contribution to the discussion of apologetics and why it is that people should not be leaving the church, why it is that you can have faith. That's why he titles it that ye may believe. That's why it's two parts. And I expect that many people in the church who may be having doubts are going to be having these talks sent to them by believing friends and family in order to bolster them or chastise them or help them to see why it is that Mormonism really is true and they shouldn't have doubts about it. We wanted to have this discussion so that those people can see the other side of the story and understand that this argument that Elder Bednar is making doesn't hold any water. No. And it's not the argument that many of us are making today. And that's why we take issue with him saying, well, the critics are being unreasonable. We are addressing issues that the Book of Mormon never, ever imagined could exist. And yet they're ignoring those issues. So yes. there you have that. And I was going to say that actually this kind of flim flammery from the apostles is one of the reasons people are leaving. Because one of the Absolutely. main reasons that people leave, there's issues about the book of Abraham. He's not going to address that. There's polygamy, there's social issues, there's uh, treasure digging with the same means of the stone and the hat that he uses to translate the Book of Mormon, which the church hid forever. Yeah. All those things. But the main reason people are leaving is because they find out that the leaders of the church have been lying to them for their entire lives. There's they, a, a breach of trust. Oh, good way to put it. And and part of that breach of trust is the claim to be apostles in line and on the same caliber with Peter, James, and John. But don't ask us if we've seen Jesus, because that's too sacred to talk about. My final comment about Cory Hoare is that one wonders why Elder Bednar doesn't just do to the critics what Alma did to Cory Hoare to settle the argument. Is that like a challenge? Is that a challenge, Ska? Yeah, why doesn't he just shut him up like Alma did to Cory Hoare? Raise his yeah. right arm to the square, use his priesthood, and shut you up. Not me, obviously, just you. <laughs> yeah, interesting point, yeah. Yeah, because he can't, because he has no priesthood power. He knows no. it, but he's going to pretend that he does anyway. And he's going to be rational while pretending, in his mind. Yes. Now, the next thing I went to, under Cory Horror, if you're ready for this, or if you want to say anything else, please do, because I know I'm monologuing. No, no, you're good. I think your sound is better than mine tonight. I'm going to have to fix my microphone. So I like the idea of how you're elaborating, and I can put up slides as we go. You're still in the opening part, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I th I'm not sure if this slide is ready yet, but when you finish yours, you let me know and I'll put that slide up and you can read it out loud. Okay. Well, one of the things he chastises and upbraids Corey Hoare for is saying that members of the, the church, believers in Christ, have frenzied and deranged minds, right? Right. And so he wants to show, well, Obviously, we don't have frenzied and deranged minds. I mean, he's trying to insult us. Who does he think he is anyway? That's a dumb argument. I'm not, I almost said that's why it appears in the Book of Mormon. That's not why it appears in the Book of Mormon, but it's a bad argument. I don't think that members of the church or believers of any religion necessarily have frenzied and deranged minds. Some of the smartest people I know are faithful members of the church. You used to be a faithful member of the church, and you're one of the smartest people I know. Really? So that's a bad argument is what I'm saying. So that's sure nonsense, is. you know, <laughs> they come in all stripes. Some are very intelligent people. Belief is not about intelligence. It is an entirely different quality. 
altogether. But then we get to this place where he wants to say that Corey Hoare insisting that ye cannot know of things which ye do not see, period, end of quote, right? You cannot right. know of things which ye do not see. He's going to try and say that there's an argumentum absurdum that Elder Bednar is going to try and employ. I don't think he employs it successfully, but he's going to try and say that if you believe that that is true, then it's going to wipe away all these other different ways we have of gaining knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. And here's what he says. Okay, I'm just going to give the quote and then we'll take it apart. Korhor also identifies an extremely restrictive methodology for knowing what we come to know in his statement, ye cannot know of things which ye do not see. That one simple assertion denigrates any means of knowing other than seeing. It falsely sleeps away, sweeps away all historical knowledge, all knowledge obtained through vicarious learning, all individual or collective intuition, all knowledge resulting from cognitive construction and dismisses the existence of objects or places not personally seen. In summary, if we do not see or experience something, we cannot know it. Now, I think Corey Hoare is going to win this argument with Elder Bednar because Corey Hoare is uh, coming at it from the empirical point of view, that the only way you can know things is through your own senses. But Elder Bednar is saying that if you follow that line of thinking, then there are all these other things that we rely on for knowledge that get thrown out in the trash heap. So he starts about all historical knowledge, and that's what he says. Well, the problem is, is that studying history doesn't give us knowledge (laughs) about history. It doesn't mean that we were there and saw it. We can't say we know something happened just because we're reading about it in history books, right? I agree. Yep. And I think that any historian worth their salt is not going to say we know this happened, but merely that based upon the sources that we have and the analysis that I can bring to it, this is what is most likely to have happened. Right. And there's always going to be an adjustment to whatever it is we say we know. Right. So I think that when he says that sweeps away all historical knowledge, I don't think there's any historical knowledge in the first place to be swept away. But he's making a big, yeah, it, it does. He's making a big, impressive list to make him look rational, though. Right. Right. But I think that when I analyze it, it shows me the opposite of his being rational. He then he says it sweeps away all knowledge obtained through vicarious learning, which means reading books or the Internet or whatever it is, a vicarious learning, learning about something in a means other than actually being there to witness it yourself. Well, guess what? That's not knowledge either, is it? No, it's something that we're reading what other people have said. And then hopefully we'll try and figure out what we think. But still, it's not knowledge because we're not witnessing it. We're not experiencing it through our senses. Good so that's point. one another point for Corey Hoare, I think. He then says um, it gets rid of all individual and collective intuition. So he's taking something called intuition. I don't know what the difference is supposed to be between individual and collective intuition. Yeah, collective is much more people together, so there's less chance of being wrong, right? If 10,000 people believe something, it's more true than if only two do, right? Isn't that Bednar's thinking? I have no idea because he doesn't explain. You think he'd be doing a lot more explaining of what his position is since he's already declared he's going to give a rational argument in favor of Mormonism and a belief in Jesus. But he keeps failing at every turn is the problem. 
I know what individual intuition is. Yeah. Intuition is not knowledge. I don't care if it's individual or collective. So how would Corey Hoare saying, you cannot know of things which you do not see, get rid of any knowledge that's obtained through intuition when knowledge is not gained through intuition by definition. Good point. Yeah. And finally, he goes to cognitive construction. Yeah. Wow. If we follow Corey Hoare, we can't even rely on cognitive construction to give us knowledge. Well, we shouldn't be relying on cognitive construction to give us knowledge. It may be something that ends up being likely true or maybe more likely not true, but we can't come to knowledge through cognitive constructions. Yeah, we're just putting, I mean, it, it sounds to me like we're just putting pieces together in cognitive construction, but that's no guarantee of knowledge, right? No, not at all. Right. Uh, I think that to try and read him as charitably as I can and make as much sense out of what he's saying as I can, he's trying to say cognitive construction is like when you know a couple of facts, A, B, maybe C. And based upon those facts, you construct something that leads to a conclusion that is beyond what those facts say, right? right. So you've got a cognitive construction. Well, that's not going to give you knowledge of something. It's just going to give you a construction that you may believe is true based upon what you do know already. Right. And we've got people in chat. Geoplanet Jane is asking, WTF is cognitive construction. We're trying to work through it, but Elder Bednar never described it. So that's our question too, Jane. <laughs> and it's his burden to do it. He set himself the task. He's given himself two complete talks to go over it, but he never gets there. Instead, he muddies the water. And it's like he's trying to sound intellectual without actually showing up at the party. <laughs> and in fact, the only reason I say that is first off, because I'm rude and no, abhorrent generally, but also because he's going to accuse the critics of the church of engaging in pseudo intellectualism. Yes. He oh, uses that expression. The general authority who is engaged in pseudo intellectualism throughout his entire talk accuses those who criticize him, including Corey Hort, of being the pseudo intellectuals. That's rich. I testify that we come to know many things through means other than sight, especially spiritual things. In fact, I believe Korohor's limited epistemology reveals that the only person in this scriptural account with a frenzied and deranged mind is Korohor, a reality he himself will acknowledge after being stricken dumb in consequence of the repeated and emphatic pronouncements of his own pseudo-intellectual demands. Well, we're not even criticizing him yet. We're asking him, what do your words mean? You have not defined anything. You've simply thrown stuff out there in fancy, you know, cognitive construction is a good example. So, yeah. Oh, right. And the final thing he says, it also dismisses the existence of places or objects we have not personally seen. That's not correct. Saying that you don't know of things which you do not see doesn't dismiss the existence of places or objects we have not personally seen. It just means that we cannot know of their existence if we have not personally seen them. You're getting the distinction I'm making there? Yes. Yeah. So Elder Bednar is not being... Reasonable. Well, I know he's not being unreasonable. It's the unreasonable Elder Bednar. <laughs> He's not being sharp. He's not being concrete. He's not being specific Correct. and accurate with his yeah. language. 
Right. He, he's not clarifying. He's making it more difficult. Right. And he's going over the top and trying to show that Corey Hoare is wrong when he says, you cannot know of things which you do not see. But every example that he gives of the kinds of knowledge that that gets rid of, if you follow to its logical conclusion, ends up favoring what Corey Hoare is saying and undercutting what David Bednar is saying. And that's right before the paragraph where he says, according to Alma, with Christ-focused faith, believing that which is true but not visible is, in fact, seeing. Seeing, yeah. But it's not about believing. That's where he's changing the parameter. That's where he's picking up the straw man. Yeah. Yes. Because and what I said here. Not knowledge, right? Yeah, and I made some comments like Elder Bednar is all over the place. He's now saying that belief in Christ is in fact seeing. First, faith is not seeing. Alma makes that clear. But then Elder Bednar twists the words of Alma worse than he is twisting the words of Corihor. Corihor, yeah. Yeah, Alma actually says the opposite, that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. It is hope for things that are unseen that are true. And out of that, Elder Bednar claims Alma is saying that believing what is true and not visible is in fact seeing. That's his quote. It is in fact seeing. So he's not using it in any way other than literally, which is signaled by his use of the words in fact. It is in fact seeing when obviously it's anything but. And even Alma agrees with me over Elder Bednar. And the thing that really was remarkable to me about this statement is that back last summer when I was at Sunstone, I did this magic show, right? And I showed that a common means of fooling people that magicians use is telling them what they see. And I did a trick that showed this. You tell the audience what they're going to see. And if you do that, the odds go up that they will see what it is you're describing and telling them they're going to see, even though if you hadn't told them that, they would be less likely to see it because it's not really exactly what they're seeing. Right. This is what he's saying right now is that believing is seeing. He's saying this exact same principle of fooling people. And Elder Bednar takes this principle of fooling people and now makes it a doctrine of the gospel. Believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing. And I have to say that this is also very similar to what he said before, which is that faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. Hey, uh, RFM, it appears to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears to me that Bednar is trying to make it look like faith itself is knowledge. Is that the impression you're getting as well? Yes. What he's trying to do is to privilege this idea of feelings that we have when we hear certain things said over actually seeing something or perceiving it through our senses. Yeah. Which he has to do. But once again, this is totally the opposite of what he says or indicates he's going to do at the outset. He's going to privilege spiritual feelings over objective observation. By the way, we're going to get to this in a second, so I'll wait till then. But um, there's so many things to be said about this. Oh, this is what I was saying. What he is doing is saying that faith is seeing. Faith is seeing, right? Yep. But seeing is not as good as faith. And he'll get to that even more later. But Elder Bednar says, Elder Bednar says, faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. And he will add that faith in something unseen is greater than actually seeing it. Yeah. So I think this is a great act two for his act one of faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed because he's following the same kind of pattern of absolutely rational argument. 
Very interesting. I, I, I just don't, I don't see how someone hasn't stepped up and said, um, there's no definition anywhere that faith is ever seeing. And my suspicion is he's trying to sneak that in with his fancy quick little flip while quoting the scripture. So no one dares, uh, discuss that with him so that he can cover up the fact that he has not seen. But his faith doesn't need to see Jesus in reality to be a real apostle because his faith in Jesus Christ, it appears to me he's trying to make them equal to just like doubting Thomas. I won't believe unless I see. So Jesus showed himself to doubting Thomas. He let him feel the prints of the nails and in his side, that sword stab wound. Now that's seeing. But all the apostles today say, well, no, no, don't ask us if we've seen Jesus. We testify of the holy name. But everyone sees that has no power compared to Thomas's experience, or to Peter's, or to even Paul's, who claims he saw Jesus, even if it was in a vision, that's irrelevant. He saw Jesus and heard his voice. He wasn't just testifying of a name. I mean, it wasn't a name walking around in Galilee, healing people, and walking on water, and turning water to wine. I like it. That's a great observation. Thank you. Not as good as yours, but hey, I'm getting there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Don't even do that to me. Sorry. But we sorry. do. And I'm going to have a few more things to say about that later when we get to the part about the first vision, which is one of the things he talks about oh. under number yeah. one. Yep. But he yep. has to lay all this groundwork first so he can get his audience all softened up and yep. of the right frame of mind to be able to agree with him when he gets to the main body of his talk, which are the those five things in this talk and the five things in the next talk. But it's in this point where he's talking about Cory Hor at the end. He spends a lot of time on Cory Hor. And then he'll talk a little bit about the ministry of Samuel, the Lamanite and the people who didn't believe. They thought it was not reasonable that such a being as a Christ shall come. And that some things the prophets may have guessed right among so many, because signs were happening in the book of Mormon just prior to Jesus's birth. Yeah. As had been testified to by Samuel, the Lamanite. And they're saying, well, they might have guessed right on some of these things because they said so many things. So they may have guessed right among so many. And those are the two things he's going to talk about there. I don't want to go into a lot of depth in that because we got to get to the points he's making. But it's at the end of his discussion about Corihor, where he says, in fact, I believe Corihor's limited epistemology. He knows the word limited epistemology reveals that the only person in the scriptural account with a frenzied and deranged mind is Corihor. So there, you're another one, Corey Hor. I know you are, but what am I? Yeah. Uh, then he says, it's a reality that Corey Hor himself will acknowledge after being stricken dumb, stricken dumb, remember, in consequence of the repeated and emphatic pronouncements of his own pseudo-intellectual demands. That's where he calls Corey Hor the pseudo-intellectual. In fact, I believe Corey Hor's limited epistemology reveals that the only person in this scriptural account with a frenzied and deranged mind is Korahor, a reality he himself will acknowledge after being stricken dumb in consequence 
of the repeated and emphatic pronouncements of his own pseudo-intellectual demands. And because we critics are unreasonably disagreeing with everything the Mormon leaders teach, by implication, we are also pseudo-intellectuals. And he can't be, though, because he is quoting intellectual scholarship, as we will see, and he is using the scriptures properly to show why faith is seen. Yes, but he leaves that faith is seeing part. I mean, that's just like an island out there in his talk. It doesn't relate to anything else in his talk. It's like he had this oh. great idea, right. so he threw it in there, but it doesn't connect to anything else that he's saying. It so does. I just bring it up to, to show that. Absolutely. But finally, at the end now, he's finally, he's been going on for I don't know how long. But he finally gets to his thesis statement, which is, in fact, I believe it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. That's his thesis statement for this entire talk. In fact, I believe it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. Now, of course, that's needlessly complicated, because if you break it down and say it's unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable and take out the extraneous crap, all you're saying is that faith in Jesus Christ is not unreasonable. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Well, he's trying to come across as uh, a higher intellect as an apostle. It's kind of like doubt your doubts. You know, it's unreasonable to be unreasonable. The The general authorities in the last decade has appeared to me to try to make it more catchy phrases in teaching now, because the same old stuff after 297 years has bored the hell out of us. And so they have to try to put something new in. But it's not. Right. It's what we would call in the law form over substance. Yes. He's trying to impress the audience with his intellect when it's really not intellectual, which I think is kind of the definition of a pseudo intellectual. But there you have it. And so the other comments I had was he puts this in the mouth of the critics, right? Yeah. But the critics are accusing them of being unreasonable. It's unreasonable for the critics to accuse us of being unreasonable. I think the reason he, he goes to those links is to put it in the mouth of the critic in order to be able to play offense instead of defense. But it amounts to the same thing. Yeah. And I will yeah. say this one thing, too. When you say that it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. Let me tell you, back when I was doing apologetics for the decade of the 80s, it was toward the end of that as I'm starting to segue out of apologetics because it's kind of run its course with me. Right. That I realized that I'm sitting here arguing with other Christians about whether there's any scripture outside the Bible, whether... There's one heaven, one hell, or three degrees of glory, you know, prophets today, all the things that we argue with Christians about. Yeah. And it occurred to me one evening that actually all Christians, including Mormons, believe one thing in common, and that's that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected on the third day. And then it occurred to me, you know, all Christians believe the single most unreasonable thing that I think it's possible for a person to believe. And that is that a dead man came back to life. And it was when I realized that, that it also occurred to me that why is it that we're arguing about all these secondary issues 
about scriptures outside the Bible or prophets today or the Book of Mormon being the word of God. Why are we arguing about all these things when we already agree on the single most unreasonable thing that could possibly be conceived? Because when you believe, when you share a belief that a dead guy came back to life, everything else is kind of secondary, I think. Yeah, good point. So, so building on that, when Elder Bednar says it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable, I have to counter with the idea that no, Elder Bednar, the single most unreasonable thing a person can believe is that a dead man came back to life. And therefore, it is not reasonable to have faith in Jesus Christ at least not if that faith incorporates the idea that he died and came back to life. And by the way, also, that he's coming back again real soon, even though it's taken him 2,000 years to get around to it, and there's no sign that he's coming anytime I've got, soon. I've got my alarm set. I'm going to be ready. I've got it 15 minutes ahead of time. <laughs> because I've got a modern-day Urim and Thummim and the Seer Stone here. Bednar has my permission to say that, or I have his permission. Yeah. Do you want to say anything before we get to the dispensation of the fullness of times section of his talk? Uh, no, I think you've been doing fantastic. I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you do most of the talk, and I apologize. Apparently, my mic is not very good, which really torques my britches. But oh well. I hear I'm, you fine. I I know, but they don't. So it, they say my voice sounds far away and high, like a soprano, and I think it's because I sung and it broke my mic. I don't know. I thought that was your normal speaking voice. <laughs> RFM. <laughs> okay, well you're gonna have to you're gonna have to spell me at sometimes because I'm gonna lose my voice. I've been coughing for no. several weeks no. now. Okay. Under the dispensation of the fullness of time section, he talks about he's been 50 years a member, full-time missionary, blah blah blah. He's heard all these arguments against the church. And then he says Over those years, just like all of you. I have met and talked with many people who are critical of our church, our doctrine, and our practices. And I believe the basic arguments used by our contemporary detractors have not changed very much since the days of Korahor and Samuel the Lamanite. Well, there I think that he's showing that he has no idea, or at least he's feigning or presenting that he has no idea of what the arguments are today, because they have nothing to do with Korahor or anything in the Book of Mormon. Right. Because actually the arguments have changed quite a bit. And yeah. Elder Bednar, if you're watching this, you must know this because you and the other apostles were the ones who were in charge of approving the gospel topics essays. Ooh. So don't sit there and right. pretend that these are the same arguments made in the Book of Mormon as are made today. But he wants to do that so he can go against the straw figures in the Book of Mormon and pretend that he's defeated today's critics. Elder Bednar knows what the issues are over which people are leaving but he refuses to talk about them. He's going after straw man arguments in the Book of Mormon, which is presumably safer for him to do. The main reason people are leaving the church and stop believing is when they find out their leaders, such as Elder Bednar, have been lying to them their entire life. I said that before, but this is where it appears in my notes in the outline of Elder Bednar's talk. Right. Okay? That's why they're leaving. And unfortunately, Elder Bednar is going to be giving us lots of examples of apostles, specifically him, engaged in the same kind of hide-the-ball presentation, which is why people are leaving the church. Because if you want to get the truth about the church, you can't go to an apostle. These are the guys who will never tell you the truth about the church, and they've proven it over, what, 
200 years. Yeah. Over the course of 200 years, they've proven it. And we'll see it again tonight when we look at these slides with his five points. Every one of the five points he makes in his first presentation is problematic. Every one of them. Yes, they are all problematic. Even if he were correct, that these were completely novel ideas from Joseph Smith, and there's no counterpart in his culture that he could have drawn them from. Right. His argument still doesn't convince. No. Because innovation doesn't equal revelation. And okay. Truth. So yeah. his entire thesis, even as he presents it, is blown out of the water at that point. But now, in a few minutes, we're going to go through those individually, the first five. But he still isn't done with his introduction. And he's going to say something else. And here's one thing he's going to do, okay? Elder Bednar knows there's a potential objection out there of Joseph Smith getting some of his ideas from other sources and other books that were in his culture, in his environment, and that said a lot of the same things that show up as innovations that Joseph Smith is going to reveal later on after the church is organized in 1830. He wants to deal with that objection up front, but I think he does more damage by trying to deal with it than if he had not tried to deal with it. And what I'm speaking of specifically here is the Manchester Library. The Manchester Library is five miles away from Joseph Smith's home. That's how far he would have to go. Five mile hike. Five mile hike, that's all it is. And there were books in there that do discuss ideas that do show up in Joseph Smith's theology later on, including some of the innovations that Elder Bednar is going to be talking about could only have come from God. So he's going to try and take care of it by saying, quoting Lucy Mack Smith, stating, quote, Joseph was less inclined to the study of books than any child we had, period, end of quote. And all he's going to say about the Manchester Library is this. Thus, the claim that Joseph derived some of his religious and theological ideas from the old Manchester rental library seems unlikely. Joseph was less inclined to the study of books than any child we had. Thus, the claim that Joseph derived some of his religious and theological ideas from the old Manchester rental library seems unlikely. And that's all he's going to say, and then he's going to go on, right? A little vague, isn't it? That is all he's going to say about the, I think, demonstrable fact that there were books and ideas in Joseph Smith's Melu that seem very strangely similar to his doctrinal innovations that he comes up with later on. That's why Elder Bednar wants to deal with it, but he doesn't really want to talk about it in depth. But he does give a footnote about the Manchester Library, and that's to the paper that was published in BYU Studies back in 1982. So I looked up the paper. And the paper, yes, you use this quote from Lucy Mac Smith. Are you and the allowed paper, to do scholarship? I'm sorry, what? Are you allowed to do scholarship? You looked up the paper? You didn't just believe Elder Bednar? Well, I thought I should look it up to see what the heck he was referencing. So, so here we so go. Your pseudo-scholar move for the, uh, the show, right? You looked it up. Yeah. You didn't have faith that he was telling you the truth. You went and looked it up. Good job. Right. And here's where Elder Bednar gives away the farm. He knows that there are arguments that Joseph Smith derived many of his unusual doctrines from books that had been written and were, in fact, available in the Manchester Library only five miles away from his home. So let me ask you this. 
is it more reasonable to believe that Joseph Smith derived his doctrinal innovations from books and ideas that were in circulation five miles from his home or that he got it directly from God? Ooh, That's the question. That Which is, is the, the more question. rational? Can I flip a coin? <laughs> no. No, you must use your noggin. Can I use a seer stone? <laughs> you can flip a two-headed coin if you call heads. Yeah, that, no, that's a good point. Yeah, what is more rational? Right, and so we go to Robert Paul, who wrote this article. And although Robert Paul comes to that same general conclusion, he also has a few other things to say in this relatively brief yeah. paper. Because the Manchester Library, we have this godsend, if I can say, that providentially, we know what the contents of the Manchester Library was around the time of Joseph Smith, okay? Yes, we do. So yep. we have that, and he gives that as a list in his appendix. But in the paper itself, let's see what you've got, my friend, as far as quotes from his article. From the paper, yes. can you read that entire paragraph in the middle for me? Yes, I can. While most of the books were not directly relevant to emerging themes within either the new church or its growing literature, it has been suggested that several of the books dealt with material which directly or at least implicitly formed the intellectual material from which Joseph Smith borrowed his doctrines. So themes discussed in some of these books and those developed by Joseph Smith, which eventually were expressed in the religion and theology of the new church, include... American antiquities, the Hebraic origin of the Indians, the plurality of the worlds, South American geography, missionary efforts among the American Indians, and early Christian developments. That's a lot of themes that he had accessible to, didn't it? In a library five miles away from his house. Now, can you continue to read that next thing? Because it's going to, going to go into detail about two of those books, which are of a special interest to Mormonism. Okay, I'll read the line that leads into the next slide, okay? What it says is this. For example, this is continuing right after what you read. For example, Josiah Priest's The Wonders of Nature and Providence Displayed okay. contains a potpourri of topics ranging from natural history and philosophy to religion and literature. That volume that's in the Manchester Library contains a verbatim extract. Now go ahead. Okay, extract of all the salient arguments of Ethan Smith's thesis of the Hebraic origins of the American Indians, presented in the first edition of his view of the Hebrews in 1823. So the priest volume had already begun to circulate among Manchester Library patrons by late 1836. So the concept of multiple world systems and of inhabitants in celestial orbs such as perhaps Kolob, maybe, in both time and space, was thoroughly discussed on two Manchester Library volumes by Thomas Dick, who was one of the most prolific advocates of the pluralist doctrine. His philosophy of a future state, 1829, and the Christian philosopher, 1823, deal extensively with the notion that the universe is fully peopled both for the glory of God and for the glory of man. These volumes did not begin to circulate, however, until early 1830, 
Brief extracts from Dick's future state later appeared in the Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate, December 1836. So they were utilizing this material. Right. And the slant of this paper is trying to say, well, yeah, they're there, but they didn't get start used or circulated until later on in the 1830s. But that's in the Manchester Library. What we know is that Joseph Smith has got volumes that are a five mile walk from his house in which appear these kinds of ideas that get incorporated into Mormonism in the 1830s. Okay. In every one and of the books of scripture. Yes. That Joseph Smith produced, right? Yes. Yeah, subsequent scriptures. And so the idea is to say, even though these were available in books that were five miles away from Joseph Smith, that because his mom said he didn't really read as much as his other brothers and sisters, he wasn't that much into book learning, that that becomes irrelevant that those are there. And so it must be God giving him these ideas that are found in these other books, a five mile walk from his home, because that's the only rational conclusion you can draw. Interestingly, I'll just synopsize it. Okay. Instead of you going through those slides again, what the author says is, Hey, He didn't have to go to Manchester five miles away to go check out books anyway. There's a library right there in Palmyra, which is two miles from his house. Now, we don't have a list of all the holdings of the Palmyra Library, but we know they had one. He also talks about all the booksellers in Palmyra, and they were going through books like hotcakes. So these are ideas that Joseph Smith could have gotten from books, or he could have gotten them from other sources. The author of this paper says that Joseph Smith probably was more likely to get his information from newspapers and pamphlets and things like that, or talking to other people. Fine. It's all around. Everybody's talking about this. The one single most important subject during the Great Awakening is guess what? Religion. It's what everybody's talking about. Everybody's trying to figure out what the correct answer is among a host of conflicting views on every subject imaginable associated with Christianity. Yeah. So having said all of that, That's the paper that Elder Bednar cites to in support of his one sentence dismissal of the idea that Joseph Smith could have gotten any of his ideas from secular means and books and pamphlets and newspapers in his community. And bookstores that distributed the books to both the Manchester Library and the Palmyra Library, but none of this was available to Joseph Smith, according to David Bednar. It's like he lived in a vacuum, and we just know that narrative don't wash anymore. Yeah, he wants to take the single most obvious basis that Joseph Smith could have come up with these ideas from his community and put it to the side, because that's totally going to destroy Elder Bednar's argument that they had to come from God. In fact, at the end of this part one, he's going to say that the only way that anybody could have come up with all of these ideas and done all the things that Joseph Smith did is if they were directed by God. Otherwise, it could never have happened in this or any other universe. So he has to get rid of that. I'm just suggesting he doesn't do it effectively or rationally. The only way any person at any time anywhere in the world could have done what young Joseph Smith did is with God's help and inspiration. In my judgment, to believe that he accomplished all that he accomplished with his limited mortal capacity is unreasonable. Especially when his own Mormon scholars 
have definitely shown, and it doesn't matter whether they're from BYU or U of U or BYU-Idaho, his own Mormon-trained scholars have shown that the environmental influences, and we do have Dan Vogel in the audience tonight. Welcome, Dan Vogel, my good friend. Uh, he has also shown, so has Tim Rathbone in the audience, that the environmental influences of Joseph Smith through the decades have just been gently increasing until for the last 200 years. It's pretty cotton-picking overwhelming. Right, and I talked with a friend of mine who's a professor of classics at Florida State University. Yeah. It's generally understood about this idea that Joseph Smith, I mean, he could have read books and gotten this idea from books, certainly. But yeah. also, these ideas are in the environment and they're being discussed. So he doesn't actually have to read a book to encounter the idea. Now, that sounds kind of amorphous, but I came up with a, a good example of that currently, which is this. How many people out there, by a show of hands, how many people in the audience have ever heard of the Big Bang Theory? I'm going to expect every hand's going up. That's and what happens after I eat beans. Oh, sorry. Well, I guess that's probably the least objectionable thing one could say about it. So <laughs> the, uh, the Big Bang Theory, and most people have a general idea of what it is. I'm not saying a technical, detailed understanding of it, but this general idea of what it is. And then I would ask, how many people have read a book about the Big Bang Theory? I'm going to guess everybody, virtually everybody's heard about it in our society because it's one of those ideas that's in the air that people talk about. And I'm going to guess the majority of people who have heard about it and have an idea about what it means have never read a book about it. I know I fall into that category. I've never read a book about the Big Bang Theory. I've read enough books that it'll cover you over then on the Big Bang Theory. I've got 15 or 20 over there I've read, so I'll loan them to you. Yes. You see, you are the exception to every rule, Carrie. Oh, yikes. That can be bad. <laughs> but there are people like you who've read about it. But I'm going to guess that the majority of people who know about it never read a book about it. But it's an idea that's in circulation. And in the same way, in Joseph Smith's day, these ideas about plurality of worlds, inhabited worlds, it was in circulation. Everything's yeah. in circulation. He's going yeah. to all the different churches. He's talking with people. It's the second great awakening. Yeah. I'm crying out loud. So you don't have to read a book to know about an idea. And Joseph Smith didn't have to read these books, although he may have, but he didn't have to in order to yeah. know about the ideas that were in those books. Excellent point. Yep, yep, yep. We're almost to the point where he actually gets to the what the heck he's going to talk about. But well, he wants to no, frame this. Listen, he still is unframing it. I know, but this has been very vital and important to do because without the framework, his points aren't going to make any sense. I don't think they make any sense anyway. They don't. But I mean, as far as trying to, he wants us to believe. But with this framework, you you can't because it's been so, dare I say it, unreasonable. Okay. I think so too. So his first thing that he gets to, and we need to get to this because we got to get through this, is the nature and character of the Godhead. This is number one on his list of five things that he'll get to tonight. And then there's five separate things he'll get to in the next talk, which we're not gonna cover tonight. But the first one is the nature and character of the Godhead. Now, this is how he starts every one of his doctrinal things about Mormonism that makes Mormonism different from a lot of other Christians, right? Correct. 
Correct. is he tries to compare it with what other churches were teaching in Joseph Smith's day to show that it's different from what Joseph Smith restored. Therefore, Joseph Smith was not influenced by the false traditions, is what he calls them, the false traditions of other Christians of his day. And that first paragraph, this is how he starts off, and this is illustrative of how he's going to start off each one of these sections. We should begin at the beginning. So the first doctrinal truth to consider is the nature and character of the Godhead. The most common way the Godhead would have been explained by those from whom Joseph was learning in the second decade of the 1800s is one divine being who appears in different modes or forms, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Thus, Joseph Smith would have almost certainly entered the sacred grove with the false assumption that God the Father was the same being as the Son and the Holy Ghost. Then he's going to go into what Joseph Smith says happened in the 1838 account of the first vision where there's two beings. And then he's going to go to section 130, I think it is, where it talks about there's three beings in the Godhead, right? The Father having a body, flesh and bones, Son also, or vice versa, and Mouse is the same thing. And the Holy Ghost being a personage of spirit, right? Yep. So this is what he's doing. And I want to frame what he's arguing before we dismantle it. Okay. So what he's trying to say is Joseph Smith is surrounded by these uh, preachers and religionists who are teaching this kind of thing. And even says the most common way the Godhead would have been explained. So how is it that Joseph Smith restores things that are different from what his culture is teaching if, in fact, he were not a prophet of God. That's his argument that That's he's trying to make. And I've actually said it more clearly than he says it. Yeah, you But I'm have. trying to steel man his argument. Okay, yeah. I'm trying to steel man his argument so that we can find out what it is he says, try and put it in the most effective way possible before we start seeing how it doesn't really make any sense what he's saying and in a couple of ways. Okay, did you have a slide about the Godhead? I do. Okay, why don't you take it away? Because amazingly... Okay. I also said, I said, amazingly, I said, here, you're going to take it away. And I continue. That's like he does with his intermission. He says he's going to have an intermission. And then he continues talking. Newsflash for Elder Bednar. That's not what an intermission is. <laughs> but he'll get to that between points three and four. There you go. The funny thing is, is that he correctly describes modalism. And he knows he's describing it because he puts modes in quotation marks. Right. That the Father and the Son and the Jesus and Jesus Christ, what does he say? The most common way the Godhead would have been explained by those from whom Joseph was learning in the second decade of the 1800s is one divine being who appears in different modes or forms, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Now, his argument is that Joseph Smith reveals things that are different from what he's encountering in his environment, but what he has just described is the idea of modalism in the Godhead, which yeah. is exactly the kind of Godhead we encounter from beginning to end of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon isn't presents a that, modalistic... That Go ahead, isn't it what? That should shock us, because he's trying to separate the Christian deity from Joseph Smith's and his environment, and yet it's full-fledged in his own Book of Mormon. But Bednar doesn't let us in on that secret. No, he doesn't tell us that part. And so, okay, so just to put the, the fine point on that argument, right? If yep. he's saying that Joseph Smith is presenting revelations 
that are not influenced by his environment. And if Elder Bednar is saying his environment is teaching the doctrine of modalism, then the question becomes, why is that doctrine present throughout the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith produces in 1829? He's undercutting his own argument, at least if you know the rest of the story. Thank you, R.S. And there's also a problem. There's also a problem with the first vision account, and that's your slide, so please take it away. Okay. Uh, well, first, uh, let me let me just get back to this first doctrinal truth, the nature and character of the Godhead. Um, since he learned in the first vision that the Father and Son are separate, both have flesh and bones, the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. Christ is literally the Son of God in the flesh and the spirit who has progressed to where God is now. Now, the issue we have before us historically is that there are several differing and contradictory First Vision accounts. And not all of them said two personages visited Joseph Smith. So we are giving a justified, reasonable response. We are not being unreasonable when we say this is what Bednar is presenting to us here is a fatally flawed, harmonized view. And it is, unfortunately for him, it is this harmonized view that does not agree with the historical reality. In not one account is God the Father ever said to have a body of flesh and bone of the first vision. Not one. The 1832 account, which is the oldest one, the one that Joseph Smith wrote in his own hand, leads us to believe that Joseph Smith had not developed that his doctrine of the Father and Son are two separate personages. That came later in the 1835, and then, of course, later on in the official 1838 account. However, it is formally elaborated on not until 1843, and it says the father, and that's the one RFM was just quoting, the father has a body of flesh and bone, uh, tangible as man's, the son also, the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bone, but is a personage of spirit. Now, that was his 1843 view. But for those of us who are not cafeteria historians, like the leaders of the church, we now understand something very significant that the 1832 account, this is the one that Joseph Fielding Smith hid for decades when he discovered it. A prophet of God in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is hiding Joseph Smith's most important vision and the account of that vision, because it didn't say what Joseph Building Smith thought it should say. And that is how he described his reason for hiding the thing. I mean, wow. So the lectures on, or the 1832 account has only the Lord of glory who was crucified for the sins of the world. That was Joseph Smith's first vision. I was going to say, which is consonant with modalism. Which is perfect with modalism. Yes, thank you. Very good point. Yes. And this is the 1832, the earliest. Now we further go on and we realize that the lectures of faith was in 1835, right? Now they did have this in the Doctrine and Covenants, the collection of revelations, until 1921. 
So it was there for like 80 plus years, my almost 90 years. Yet it has, it was then removed like the lost doctrines of the Bible. I put that in to give a Mormon twist to the irony here. Uh, here is the lectures of faith description of God. There are two personages, and this is 1835, notice, two personages in the Godhead. They are the Father and the Son. The Father being a personage of spirit, that's not a mistake. You're, you're, you're hearing that right. The Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, of course, is a personage of tabernacle. That's the blue lettering there. Possessing the same mind with the Father. And then the mind of God and Jesus is what Joseph Smith defined the Holy Ghost as. Now, I get this information from my good friend Paul Osborne in a serious analysis he's done on the first vision, and he is here in the audience tonight. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I will be doing a, a major discussion just on the first vision from Paul's research. Maybe this Thursday night, we'll see. My point here in bringing this forward, because as he showed so well, Elder Bednar is giving us the much later evolved, developed doctrine as if that has always been the belief of the church. And this is what's so unfortunate because we know there has been an evolutionary historical development of all of the Mormon doctrines, but especially this one with the Godhead. And so the scriptures are contradicting themselves as well as with Joseph Smith's doctrines until the contradictions were themselves ostracized, taken out, and changed in order to present a harmonizing view. The modern harmonizations of Elder Bednar here hides the fact that Joseph Smith did not grasp God's character. Throughout his life, he kept changing that. And that's startling to a lot of folks when they hear that. But we have the historical evidence. I am presenting that in my podcasts as well as videos here. Throughout his life and teachings, he was always developing dubious heterodoxical teachings for decades. And when that dawned on me, when that realization dawned on me, it took me months, if not years, to get over that because, of course, we are all raised. Now, I'm 61, and we are all raised with the already harmonized version as if this was had back from 1805, Joseph's birthday, all the way through. And that is simply not true. So that's the problem with the Godhead doctrine in Mormonism as a first doctrinal truth. It truly fails. In multiple ways. In so multiple I ways. I just concluded by saying what you, I think you just said, Elder Bednar goes to the 1838 account of the first vision. But this is critical. Elder Bednar knows full well that the 1832 account exists and what it says once the leadership of the church was responsible for approving and authorizing the church essays, gone are any days when they could have claimed ignorance. Yeah. Because they have exactly. to know it's in there because they approved them. They of had course. to read them. They had to approve them. So he knows what's in that 1832 account. He knows it contradicts his argument. And he is intentionally not telling his audience about it 
so that his argument will have more force. An authority, yeah. Right, it'll sound more logical than it does if you actually know the facts. Exactly, because the facts aren't logical with the doctrinal claims of the prophets and apostles today. There's the problem. This is what, yes, and this is what I meant by saying that one of the main reasons people leave the church is because the leaders of the church, the apostles, are not being straight with them. And what Elder Bednar is doing under the guise of trying to shore up their faith is showing them why it is that they shouldn't trust them because he's playing hide the ball. Yeah. Shall we go to number two? Let me keep talking, keep going, give yes. you a break. Yes, Elder Bednar is the problem, not the solution. Ooh, and and it, it's not that we're crowing about that, but unfortunately that is fundamental to this whole presentation. Let's continue and show you why. Yeah, one of the greatest disappointments of my life was finding out that the prophets and apostles of the Lord's church that I had complete faith and trust in were not telling me the truth. They were hiding yeah. things from me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The second yeah, the doctrinal second, truth. Yeah. The second doctrinal truth is heavenly plot, plothers, sorry, heavenly father's plan of salvation. Those who die unbaptized can, through Christ and the temple ordinances, still become like God. The point I will make here, and we will elaborate this on the second part that we do here probably early next year, sometime in January. We'll do a second part, just like Elder Bednar did. The point here is, this implies that Jesus Christ is not enough. And they want to be called Christian, you guys. Now, let's understand this then. Okay, we'll call you Christians. Then why isn't Jesus Christ's infinite atonement enough? Now, the the amazing thing here is the definition of God, and there are two spots. Uh, I just quoted the DNC 2017 here that says God is infinite. Now, I'm doing a series of podcasts on infinity, and it's difficult to comprehend, but infinity is vastly bigger than our entire universe in both power, size, extent, time, whatnot, whatever. Yet, the ultimate creator of the universe it's not enough to accomplish his goals without extra stuff to do. And so it appears the way they present it, that this is uh, downsizing an infinite atonement. That's, that's just that particular point. Do you, would you like to add anything to that RFM or shall I keep going? We're running out of time here. Yeah, I'll go ahead really quickly about the Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. Point number two. Am I I muted? No, I'm not even muted. Okay. So uh, what I want to say is this, is that he he talks about Alvin and Alvin dying and being a source of concern for the family and for Joseph about the state of Alvin's soul because he had died without being baptized into the Presbyterian church that his mom and some others in his family went to. The second doctrinal truth to consider is Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. One of the basic elements of God's plan seems to have weighed heavily on Joseph's mind and heart, the loss of any soul who died unchurched. Joseph's brother William explained. Hiram, Samuel, Catherine, and mother were members of the Presbyterian Church. My father would not join. He did not like it because a Reverend Stockton 
had preached my brother's funeral sermon and intimated very strongly that he had gone to hell, for Alvin was not a church member. But he was a good boy. The pastor of the congregation Lucy had joined held that membership in a church and presumably baptism into that church were requisite for salvation. As a consequence, Joseph had every expectation that Alvin was lost for eternity. And I think that's really very important because I think that is one of the major threads that Joseph Smith pursues throughout his life is what happens to those who died without having had the chance to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he quotes from, he being Elder Bednar, quotes from section 137. He quotes this in his talk. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, because remember there's the vision, Joseph Smith sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom. He says, WTF, what's Alvin doing in the celestial kingdom? He died before the rest of, before the church was organized. He couldn't yeah. even be baptized, right? He couldn't have gotten the right gospel because it wasn't here yet when he died. I think he died in 1823 it was, yeah. at the end of the year. So he gets this answer. How is it that Alvin could be in the celestial kingdom? And this is what it says. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. This revelation is in section 137. This vision was received by Joseph Smith in January of 1836, prior to the uh, dedication of the Kirtland Temple, though I think it happened in the Kirtland Temple before it was dedicated. The key there is that Joseph Smith's answer to what happens to those who die without hearing the gospel is not being preached to in the spirit world. It's not having ordinances performed for them like baptism for the dead or anything else. It's simply if they would have received it with all their hearts, if they had heard it, then they'll be saved in the celestial kingdom. That's what section 137 tells us. Now, this is not even the beginning of Joseph Smith's answer to that question. This is actually an intermediary stage in 1836. So really quick, the Book of Mormon has a different answer for what happens to people who die without hearing the gospel. And the Book of Mormon doesn't say what section 137 says. The Book of Mormon says, if you die without hearing the gospel, you're saved. Period. By the grace of Christ. There's nothing about, oh, you would have had to have accepted it with all your hearts. You're just saved, period. And this is in Moroni chapter 8, verses 22. This is one of the two places in the Book of Mormon where it talks about this. But it's very wow. interesting. Oh, do you want to read that? Do you have that in front of you? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Last minute. Because yeah. what we do when we read this is we focus on the little children. And we sometimes don't recognize that the same thing that's being said about little children who die is also being said about all those that die without the law. In other words, without a knowledge of the literally, gospel. that's yes. not figurative. Yeah, yeah. This, this shocked me when RFM pointed this out to me. So I asked him if he wouldn't mind if I read it tonight. This is astounding. Moroni 22 through 8, 24. Yeah, Moroni 8, chapter 8, 22 through. So we're talking now, understand this 
This is between 400 and 421 A.D. This is post-Jesus by centuries. So, for behold, that all little children are alive in Christ. So that puts our mind on the little children, but observe the rest of the context. And also, all they that are without the law. For the power of redemption cometh on all them that have no law. Full stop, you guys. There's no exceptions. Wherefore, he that is not condemned or he that is under no condemnation cannot repent, and unto such baptism availeth nothing. But it is mockery before God to denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and putting trust in dead works. That's blowing my mind even now when I read it. Christ is the whole answer, according to the Book of Mormon, regardless of whether you've ever heard of him or not. And there's nothing about any other works that the Book of Mormon says dead works in trying to get him saved. They're already all saved. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then verse 24, old Bean. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yeah. Behold, my son, this thing ought not to be, for repentance is unto them that are under condemnation and under the curse of a broken law. Right. So the theology in the Book of Mormon is very simple, or I should say the soteriology relating to those who die without hearing the right. gospel, which is if you don't hear the gospel, you don't know what the law is that God expects you to adhere to. And therefore, you can't break the law because you don't know it. And therefore, you can't be under condemnation for breaking a law that you don't know about. Because of that, you don't even have to repent. Because how do you repent of doing something that you didn't know was wrong? And therefore, you're not under condemnation either. And it says that. Right. Amazing. So people who die without law, which is the vast majority, excuse me, the people who die without law, which in the Book of Mormon context is knowing the true gospel, right? Right, right. People who die without the law which is why you stress that it's 400 years after Jesus. So you can't go and try and make an Old Testament argument that this is what applied before Jesus came, because in the Book of Mormon, it is way after Jesus came. Yeah. That those who die cannot be condemned because they don't know the law, and therefore they can't repent. And not only that, baptism availeth nothing. Yeah. So for is little children who... Yeah, baptism availeth nothing. And I'm just going to say right here that we have this three-step process. 1829, Book of Mormon, people who die without a knowledge of the law, without a chance to hear it, are saved automatically through the grace of Christ. Yeah. You move forward to 1836 in section 137, which is the one that Elder Bednar quotes. He doesn't quote right. this stuff from the Book of Mormon. Right. Now, it's changed. And you're not saved automatically if you don't hear about the gospel. Instead, if you would have accepted it with all your heart— then you're saved in the celestial kingdom. And it's not until 1840 that Joseph Smith introduces the idea of baptisms for the dead. And I think that was in the funeral discourse for Seymour Brunson. Regardless, it's in 1840 in Nauvoo, and that's when everybody and their dog starts running down to the Mississippi River and baptizing oh, yeah, each other for yeah. their deceased relatives, right? Yep, yep. Okay. 
So the thing I'm trying to, the point I'm laboring toward is that ordinances for the dead is not where Joseph Smith starts. He starts with a very different idea, comes to another idea in the middle of the 1830s. And then at the 1840 mark, he comes up with ordinance work for the dead, including baptism for the dead. Right. The thing that really struck me this morning when we were talking about this passage from Moroni chapter eight Mm -hmm. is that instituting the doctrine of baptism for the dead is not just a theological development along this timeline. It actually contradicts what the Book of Mormon itself says. That's what surprised me because the Book of Mormon says he that is not condemned, those who die without law. Wherefore, he that is not condemned or he that is under no condemnation cannot repent. And unto such baptism availeth nothing. Nothing. There's no so the Book of Mormon says, yeah, baptism avails nothing for someone who dies without the law. Well, in 1840, Joseph Smith's view has changed and he's seeing things differently. And now he's instituting baptism for the dead, which the Book of Mormon yeah. specifically says is meaningless. It avails nothing for someone who dies without the law. Right. Yeah, yeah, that that's like I said when you when you pointed that out and we were exploring this. I mean, we were both missionaries for crying out loud, and we both taught all this stuff. And I have never seen it so clearly until just now on, on this development, uh, and yet this unreasonable contradiction that is supposed to be the truth. That's the problem. Right. And once again, he's not giving us as full a description of the historical development of doctrines. He wants to take them to where the church teaches them today, show that they're not what Joseph Smith environment was, and therefore show it must have been from God. Once again, that argument is not logical. It's a non sequitur, but that's the best he's got. But when we actually examine it, we find that what Joseph Smith is doing is replicating ideas that were around in his environment, even from other Christian churches, and perhaps especially from Methodism. Well, and then and then also, and I will just say this, because I promised him I would. I see Paul Osborne is still posting. Ex- I will say that is true for most of the doctrines, except for the developmental aspect of the doctrine of God. And that began to change more dramatically with Joseph Smith's translation of the Egyptian papyri. And I have slides I'm preparing, a full course lecture on that for this this live session. But I just want to give Paul credit. I think he's on to something. Seriously, the doctrine did change. I mean, all of the doctrines have changed. The way the Mormons will approach this, however, is through this principle that they elaborate on as continuing revelation. Uh, so, of course, yes, today is going to be different than it was last year or last decade or century because God is continually revealing more and more. What they don't let you know is that gives them literally unlimited ability to innovate on anything that will suit the public whether it is true or not. Yes. Yeah, when your church changes, it's apostasy. When my church changes, it's continuing revelation, right? Right. Yeah. Are you ready to go to the next thing? Okay, because yeah. this is the importance of mortality and a physical body. This is number three. And this is the way he prefaces it, okay? 
The third doctrinal truth to consider is the importance of our mortal experience and a physical body. Some Christians believed in the 1800s, some Christians in the 1800s believed that the principal purpose of this life was to determine whether each person will go to either heaven or hell. And then skipping down to the end of that paragraph. However, the prevalence of these views in Joseph Smith's day and particular location cannot be identified specifically. Thus, I am presuming Joseph may have had some exposure to or knowledge of these teachings. Now, once again, he's going to go into Mormonism and say it's not heaven and hell. It's the three degrees of glory, right? Yeah. However, the idea of heaven and hell is throughout the Book of Mormon as well as modalism is. Christian. So if he's arguing that, yeah, if he's, if he's identifying heaven and hell as a Christian doctrine and trying to argue that Joseph Smith was not influenced by these Christian doctrines that were in circulation in his day, then why is this particular Christian doctrine, which he just described, throughout the Book of Mormon? for 500 pages and 1,000 years, or 2,000 years. There is no three heavens idea or a limited punishment in hell that is called eternal punishment, like in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is Christian doctrine in the Book of Mormon. It, that's amazing. Yeah. Right. And if Elder Bednar is saying that Joseph Smith was not influenced by the false traditions, is how he puts it, of his day— Yes, he Why does. In the keystone of our religion. Yeah, thoroughly saturated with it, Noah. And remember, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of the earth, and it has the fullness of the gospel. And yet it hardly has anything. And they have apologetic ways around that, but I don't find those very persuasive. I never did find them persuasive as an apologist ever either. I was always hoping something better would come up. I always actually, as an apologist, avoided that whole line of saying, yes, the Book of Mormon is, it has the fullness of the gospel. I never told anybody that because I, I just did not like the defense, and now I really don't. So anyway, yeah, yes. very good point. But it does show this uh, where Joseph Smith was in 1829, versus where he changed things later on as he yeah. developed things theologically, because he was yeah. a doctrinal innovator. He was an eclectic oh. aggregator. And it never stopped. Yeah. No, never, until he no. stopped. Until he stopped, yeah. The other thing about this is that Elder Bednar just wants to talk about the heaven or hell. He doesn't talk about it being throughout the Book of Mormon. He wants to talk about the three degrees of glory, right? The thing he's not telling us is that another very prominent view of the day was universalism which is that everybody gets saved mm. in heaven, ultimately. And he's also not telling us that that was what Joseph Smith's dad believed, which is one of the reasons that Joseph Smith's dad and his mom didn't agree on religion. That's right. He wouldn't join her church at all, the, the Presbyterians. He wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. And I would ask Elder Bednar, why don't you mention what we know about Joseph Smith Sr.'s beliefs? And the answer is because it doesn't fit into your argument. He's only going to tell us the stuff that fits into his argument. The other stuff that eviscerates his argument, he's not going to talk about because his goal isn't to find out what the truth of the matter is. His goal is to try and get people to continue to believe by hook or by crook. But this universalism, of course, fits very nicely into Section 76, which will change the doctrine from the Book of Mormon into one where virtually everyone does get saved. That's a good point. That's excellent. And didn't, I, I can't remember. I know Dan Vogel's in the house too, but I believe it's DNC 19 
that the explanation of eternal punishment is God's punishment. It's not that it's endless. It is describing it's the kind of punishment God is going to have to give because people weren't obedient. But that doesn't mean it's eternal forever. There are indications in the Doctrine and Covenants there and also in section 29, verse 30, that even those who go to outer darkness will not be there forever. Oh, and that they will eventually be saved as well, which yeah, is that's universalism. Yeah, that's the one where Brigham Young said, oh, no, you go into outer darkness, even the very eternal intelligences that you have been for eons and eons in infinite eternity will be taken apart. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, what it says in section 29, by the way, where it says, sure. wherefore, I, God speaking, wherefore, I will say unto them, the bad guys, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And now, behold, I say unto you, Never at any time have I declared from mine own mouth that they should return. For where I am, they cannot come, for they have, no, they have no power. But verse 30, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, wow. and if that isn't that's... a big tease, I don't know what is. No kidding, He's saying, right? I've never said that they would come back to me. Because yeah. they don't have the power to come back to me. But you remember, oh, I haven't told you everything about my judgments. He's leaving this huge loophole yeah. out there for us I'm to speculate that what he means is eventually everybody will be saved. And that is pure universalism. Truly and dad is. would be so proud. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, Dan Vogel has now spoken up. Yes, Doctrine and Covenants 19 contradicts the Book of Mormon. I remember he had a big discussion on the message boards about that. A few years ago. So, okay, let's move on to this one, shall we? There's the intermission between oh, three I and thought, four, remember? I thought, I thought we were going to go through all five and then do the intermission at the end. No. Now, what sense does that make, Harry? Well, because we're intermission between. <laughs> <laughs> that makes almost as much sense as having an intermission and then continuing to talk, which is what Elder Bednar did. <laughs> Shall we have an intermission real quick? All right. Hold on. Good heavens, yeah. yes. And by the way, Here's the thing. I've got a song to play for intermission. We're not going to do an intermission where I keep talking because heaven knows I've done enough of that. Word is out that there's going to be a new version of Follow the Prophet in the primary songbook for the kids and that there's going to be a verse for each one of the prophets of the church that applies specifically to them. And I was texting with Rebecca Biblioteca last night. And she asked me this offhand question about, well, when Elder Bednar becomes president, what is the verse going to be that they're going to write about him for follow the prophet? So I just dashed off a few lines. I texted it back to her. And much to my surprise, she's a piano player, otherwise known as a pianist. And she plays it and sings it and records it. And I've got it right here for intermission time. So this is the follow the prophet verse, which is specifically for Elder Bednar. By the way, I put Terminator Jr. in there. I know she's watching and I apologize. I got to explain this. I'm not sure she understood the reference because I've said that, you know, Elder Bednar looks like Terminator Jr. It's the eyes, right? I, I think she says Terminate Jr. But it's supposed to be Terminator Jr. They say behind his back. Okay. But with that brief clarification, I want to play this and I hope you guys are going to like this. Once again, this being a first-class production, I'm going to play this off of my phone. Okay. okay. They say play it away. So. Primary children. 
Today, we're going to be learning a new verse of our favorite primary song, Follow the Prophet. Can we all use our best primary voices? Wonderful. Let's get started. Bednar was annoying. Sternly he would talk. If you don't believe me, you can take a walk. Terminator Jr. Rebecca Biblioteca. Thank you. You are a woman of many talents. Thank you, Rebecca Biblioteca. You rock, girl. Now let's have an intermission with our beloved Elder Bednar, and then we'll get. That right was the out. intermission. No, this is the intermission. That's oh, the okay. That's the introducting song to the intermission. Okay. What do you have? Exactly the same today as it was anciently. So it's not a large corporation, and the apostles are not the board of directors. The Savior knows people by name. He knows their circumstances. And he directs us in our work. Uh, we extend a particular welcome to those of you that are uh, participating and attending your first Beneficial Financial Group event. Welcome to the Beneficial Financial Group family. Uh, we would like to take a special moment to honor a number of special guests with us here this evening. We extend a special welcome to President Gordon B. Hinckley, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Chairman of Deseret Management Corporation, uh, our parent. President Thomas S. Monson, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a former board member of Beneficial Financial Group and his wife, Frances. President James E. Faust, Second Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Boyd K. Packer, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and a former chairman of Beneficial Financial Group. We excuse uh, President Packer's wife, Donna, who is visiting with family in the East. We also welcome other members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and their wives, members of the presiding bishopric and their wives. That would be exactly the same today as it was anciently. So it's not a large corporation and the apostles are not the board of directors the savior knows people by name he knows their circumstances and he directs us in our work so anyway i had to share that because go ahead expatiate on that please what's that expatiate on that please and please do so keeping in mind the fact that people hear only the audio when i put it up at the rfm site are not going to be able to see what was going on in the screen. So go ahead and describe oh, that for us. Oh, and okay. let me know what the main point is you're making. Yes. The apostle Bednar was asked, isn't the church just a corporation? And he said, no, we are apostles. The Lord knows each of us by name. And then the video cut to a meeting that was held with one of the main multi-billion dollar corporations that the church owns. And the chairman of that corporation was introducing 
all of the former prophets and several of the apostles who are on the acting board of those multi-billion dollar corporations. Which and that was beneficial not, life, wasn't it? Was beneficial, was it beneficial life. life? Yes. And so Bednar is simply not telling the truth whatsoever, trying once again why we don't trust these guys to hide the truth. And that. No, I trust them to hide the truth. No, <laughs> to tell the truth. Did I say hide the truth? I meant tell yeah. the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that what Elder Bednar should have said when he's asked the question isn't is just a corporation? He should have said, no, it's not. It's the only true and living corporation on the face of the earth. <laughs> that would have been more realistic than what he did. Yeah. True story. Yeah, yeah. Excellent point. Okay. Intermission's done. We've got to hurry up here just a little bit. I'm not trying to be a snot nose, but I want to read through this because Elder Bednar here really fails to understand one of the serious scientific problems and issues that... Uh, face everyone these days due to science. The fourth doctrinal truth, he talks about the creation of earth and the fall of Adam and Eve. All things were created spiritually, then temporally. Earth was organized from eternal elements, and the fall of Adam was necessary to bring to pass man's eternal life. According to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, God created all things spiritually before they were created temporally. And the earth was organized from existing elements, which are eternal. The Savior's restored gospel helps us understand that the fall was necessary to bring to pass Heavenly Father's plan of offering the blessings of eternal life to His children. Now, this bar chart that I have, I could not, for the life of me, change to the actual real numbers. So it is symbolic. What this is showing us is that... We have many thousands of entire lines of ancestors in the past which have contributed to our own genetic reality in our bodies. Not all at the same time either. Some of these lines existed as far back as 4 million years ago. Some of them were as recent as 10,000 years ago. Some of them could have lived half a million years ago. The point is we have multiple ancestors' DNA in us. There has never been a time where there was an ideal prime couple, just one man and one woman, as a literal truth. Now, it can function as a symbolic lesson or importance, but to literalize that there was originally a single pair of humans from which all humans came from is pure fantasy, and that cannot be overemphasized. Bednar, of course, is not going to tell us this. Yes, Geoplanet Jane has it right. The Neanderthals, yay. Yeah, we have ancient DNA in us, man. And there's no question about that. So my point in bringing that up is just one among many. I didn't pick a doctrinal point because I picked a scientific point that this is one of the things that helped me make a, a serious decision on what am I going to be an apologist for uh, a corporation or the truth? And I just, I couldn't defend the indefensible. So I quit being a Mormon apologist. So 
would you like to add anything RFM or shall I finish up with the last point and then we can. Yeah. If we could just go to the last point, I think we, you've covered everything we need to say about the fourth point. If we can go to the fifth point and then we'll okay. be done and, and, and everybody will breathe yeah. a huge sigh of relief. Yes. Yes. They're loving this. I'm telling you, our audience has been increasing for the last two hours. Woohoo. Isn't that incredible? It is. You guys are the best, the best audience in the whole world, man. So Can I say a couple things about the atonement of Jesus Christ, his fifth point yes, before you man. go to your slide? Absolutely. Okay, he does the same thing and steps into the same cow poo on this one as he stepped in before by talking about beliefs that were prevalent among Christians in Joseph Smith's day that right. also show up in the Book of Mormon. But he doesn't say they show up in the Book of Mormon. Here's right. what, Here it is. The fifth doctrinal truth to consider is the infinite and eternal atonement of Jesus Christ. At the time of the prophet Joseph Smith, understanding of and teachings about the redemptive role of Jesus Christ and of his atoning sacrifice varied significantly in various Christian denominations. One prevalent view propounded that sin is an injustice that creates an imbalance in the divine scales of justice. Christ died to rebalance those divine scales. That's in the Book of Mormon. Mercy cannot rob justice, right? That's so right. That, that idea of the atonement is in the Book of Mormon. He goes to another belief. Another belief about the Savior's atonement was that sins have penalties attached to them, and a price must be paid for the wrongs committed. And a price must be paid for the wrongs committed. That's in the Book of Mormon, Alma 42. Right. Where Alma's talking to a son. Now there was a punishment affixed. This is from the Book of Mormon, which is exactly reflecting what Bednar, excuse me, what Elder Bednar has just told us was prevalent among certain churches in Joseph Smith's day. There was a punishment affixed and a just law given which brought remorse of conscience unto man. That's verse 18 in chapter 42 of Alma. Then he goes on in verse 22. But there is a law given and a punishment affixed, i.e. to the breaking of that law. So what he's doing is once again giving us examples of what is in Joseph Smith's environment just from the Christian denominational perspective. Yeah, yeah. And saying how could Joseph Smith have come up with these ideas that are different from what other Christians believed when actually they do show up in the Book of Mormon? Well, it appears obvious that if they're in Joseph Smith's environment and they're showing up in the Book of Mormon, odds are that's where he's getting it from. Absolutely. Once again, Elder Bednar is undercutting his own arguments right and left, but only because you and I are talking about the rest of the story. He doesn't talk about this. He's wanting his audience to think that what he's saying is absolute gospel truth when really it's only one side of the picture. Which it's like Elder is O said in 1985 that the leaders of the church have no obligation to tell both sides of the story. Right. Yeah. And that is unreasonable. That is what is unreasonable as far as or I'm at least concerned. deceptive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baby. Okay. Let's go to this last slide real quick. And then I do have, uh, this is the fifth doctrinal truth that he talked about through the atonement. Mankind may be saved. Of course, old Testament prophets knew of Christ 
Book of Mormon says we are saved by grace and individual works or efforts, and Christ suffered for our sins. What I just want to point out singly, that was one of the most impressive discussions I have ever read in any text, is my good friend Charles Harrell, whom I will be having on the show here in a couple more weeks. He was a good standing BYU professor in his book, This Is My Doctrine, for 2011, he demonstrated with extensive evidence, he actually used the biblical scholarship that it's so unfortunate that Jesus Christ is not only not mentioned in the Old Testament, but every single prophecy, allusion, or putative reference to Jesus Christ is and has always been read back into the text from either the New Testament or the modern perspective. In other words, Elder David Bednar is Mormonizing the Bible with this particular teaching here. He's not reading and understanding it on its own terms. This is what is so critical to grasp. Right, and that's a great point and something you brought up that you had realized like, today, maybe, is that Mormons don't just Mormonize the Bible. Today's church leaders are Mormonizing the Book of Mormon. Oh, and is that not shocking? I mean, folks, you've got to be blown away that this is happening. What an excellent point. Well, you're the one who came up with it, but thank you anyway. Oh, that's it. Now you embarrassed. I came up with that. I'm repeating yourself back to you, and you're saying what a great idea it is. Yes. Oh, well, I think we both el elaborated on it, so that counts. <laughs> Okay, yeah, before we close, I just got a couple more comments now because now Elder Bednar's closing. He's done his five things, and now he's going to try and get everybody to, how do you feel about this? And how do you, can you pray oh, about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. And, and get this testimony of how you feel about these things, which of course is not a rational argument at all. And here's my comments about this, and that'll be about all I have to say tonight. What he says is, Reason is important and useful. However, it is neither the best nor the only way of knowing a witness of truth by the power of the Holy Ghost that we invite into our soul produces a spiritual knowledge and illumination and a conviction more sure, more powerful, and more enduring than can be received through seeing, hearing, touching, or rational argument alone. Now, this is, of course, not the first time this has been taught by a leader of the church. I know it goes back at least to Joseph Fielding Smith. It may go back as far as Joseph F. Smith. I'm not sure about that. But it's total hogwash. It's total hogwash. They're saying that a feeling is more convincing than seeing something or perceiving it with your own senses. It's so strange to me that this is taught when it is obviously not correct. Of course, seeing God is better than a good feeling that he exists. And it's throughout Mormonism. What starts off the restoration, if not the first vision? No. Joseph Smith sees God, or at least he sees Jesus in 1832. By 1835, he's seeing two beings, right? 1838, yeah. it's clear it's the Father and the Son. But it starts off with seeing. And why did Joseph Smith focus on bringing the saints to a place where they could see God? And by place, I mean a place within themselves or in the temple where they can have this endowment of power and they can see God themselves. That was one of his primary goals, to get people to see God. And some of them did, and a lot of them didn't. 
And why is it that the apostolic charge given to the original apostles in 1835, the original LDS apostles, was to never cease striving until they had seen Jesus? And why is it that the sine qua non experience of spirituality in Mormonism is receiving the second comforter, which means having Jesus appear to you from time to time? Oh, yes, directly. All the Mormons put this highest cachet on seeing Jesus as the ultimate witness of truth and knowledge about God. And yet at the same time, Elder Bednar, among others, are saying, that's way down here. Actually just feeling that he exists and having a, a spiritual testimony is much more important than actually seeing him. When everything in Mormonism teaches exactly the opposite. By the way, Joseph Smith also said that no one can say that he knows that Jesus is the Christ unless he has handled something. And that can only be in the holiest of holies. That's one of the senses. And apparently he's alluding to touching prints of nails and hands and feet, which would make sense, yeah. right? And you've got to see it to touch it. Right. And so I have totally given up on this idea and seen it for what it is that leaders teach that having a witness of the spirit is greater than seeing God because it's manifestly incorrect. But it does give me an insight into their personality. That if they're saying that having a witness of Christ through the Holy Ghost is better than seeing him, then it's indicating to me that what they're tacitly acknowledging is they haven't seen him. Because I guarantee you, if they had seen him, that order would be reversed and back to where it was originally with Joseph Smith and seeing Jesus would be at the top of the food chain. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, RFM, um, do, you, do you get the sense that uh, had they actually really seen and talked to Jesus, their whole language, the way they use words would be truly different than what they're doing today. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's clear they haven't seen Jesus. And they look yeah. for any kind of way, some of them now, look for any kind of way they can to imply as strongly as they can that they have seen him without coming out and saying it because they know that that would actually be a lie. Like Elder Cook. Apparently, deceiving people into believing he's seen Jesus without actually saying it is okay in his book. But yeah. coming out and actually saying it when it's not true, that would be a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so I do have one last uh, video clip I would like to play. I've looked for this clip for two years, and I finally found it, and it is spot-on pertinent what we're talking about with Elder Bednar saying, the greatest truth bearer is the Holy Ghost, and it is a sure way to come to real knowledge. I just want to share this clip with you of why that simply can't work. Carrie, before you hit play, who's going to be talking and what's the context? Can you set it up for us? Oh, oh I thought everybody would know. Yes, I will. Um the foremost internet, if not world, Christian apologist, William Lane Craig, is asked a very specific question about his interpretation of the same idea Elder Bednar is telling us right now. Take a listen. All right, here's the next question from, uh, again, another question from Myth Vision. He says, when you say assurance of the Holy Spirit, yeah, do you yeah. mean something different than the assurance that Mormons experience in their belief in Mormonism? What I said was the assurance of salvation. 
Uh, and this is a very common Christian experience that persons who have come to know Christ and experienced his life-changing power have an assurance deep down that their sins are forgiven, that they have eternal life, that they are quote unquote saved uh, and, and going to be with God in heaven for eternity. That doesn't mean they don't have doubts, but they do have this deep seated fundamental assurance. And I think that that is born by the witness of the Holy Spirit to you. Now, certainly Mormons will speak of something similar, a burning in the bosom when the Book of Mormon is read. But I would say that whereas we do not have defeaters for the witness of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament sense, we have uh, overwhelming defeaters for the truth of Mormon belief. Um, I, and anyone who is interested in that, just read a book on Mormonism, its history and doctrine and Joseph Smith. I think that there's just no chance that Mormonism could be true. And therefore it follows that this emotional experience of the burning in the bosom is not of a ridicule experience. It has defeaters. Remember what we said a moment ago, that the way something seems to you can justify you in believing it if there are no defeaters of that seeming. Uh, and so in the case of Mormonism, and I would say Islam as well, there are very powerful defeaters, but I don't think there are in the case of the witness of the Holy Spirit. So what do you take from that, Professor? <laughs> to me personally, that destroys the argument entirely of a spiritual witness because if the Holy Ghost is actual now, and I mean for real in the universe, let's give it the benefit of the doubt and all of its description, it is a testifier of truth, then it could not and would not let William Lane Craig say what he just said, nor would it or could it let David Bednar say what he's saying. You notice by the use of the Holy Spirit as the final say-so, the Christian can eliminate the Mormon, and the Mormon can eliminate the Christian, and the Muslim, and the Muslim can eliminate the Christian, and the more you get the point, it isn't a final say-so. The Holy Ghost is telling, oh, just everyone, just what they want to hear. My view is right. All of you are wrong. Right. And I would go one step further because I'm just hearing this for the first time from this individual. I would have to say, if the Holy Ghost is testifying to you that something is true, that overrides any defeaters. And by defeater, he's using this term, which I think means reasons to believe that it's not correct. Rational reasons to believe it's yes. not correct. So he's saying if you yeah. get a witness of the Holy Ghost and there's no rational reasons to believe it's incorrect, then that's true. But if the Mormons get this belief from the Holy Ghost, but there's all these reasons to believe it's not correct rationally, then it's not true. My idea, though, is that if the Holy Ghost is going to bear witness to something that's true, it's true regardless of how many defeaters there might be. 
And those defeaters where rational arguments are going to have to eventually give way in light of the pure revelation that came from God with the testimony of the Holy Ghost. And of course, yeah. that's where Elder Bednar and Mormonism comes in. It doesn't make any difference how many reasons there are yeah. to not believe it rationally, although he's not going to say that. But it doesn't make right. any difference. He implies it with Manchester Library reference. The Holy Ghost trumps all. And I've yeah. got a feeling that who's is it? Dwayne Craig, the what's his name? Lane Craig? William Lane Craig. Who just said that. Yeah, he says there's no defeaters with his Christianity. I'm going to suggest that maybe he hasn't studied his Christianity as much as he studied Mormonism. Precisely. Very well said, yes. Any more than the Mormons have studied Christianity as well as they should, right? Fair enough. This whole idea Mormons don't study Mormonism as much as they should. No. So we will thank you again, RFM. It has been an absolute blast. And uh, we are going to head out so that we can go to dinner or bed. And we will get to part two sometime in the future, just as Elder Bednar at the end of his part one announces there will be a part two sometime in the future. Very well said, my friend. Well, that concludes the analysis of myself and the backyard professor, Carrie Schertz, on part one of Elder David Bednar's two-part talk, That Ye May Believe. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the information you're getting here at Radio Free Mormon, I ask you to take the time to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a donation today. $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.